0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for coming back for the Dharma tonight. Good to see you all here on the second full day of retreat. I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about wise and skillful effort which is something the Buddha talked a lot about, and I really like this topic because it—it it seems to be the whole path, and it's also quite confusing. You know, what is wise and skillful effort, and confusing for a lot of reasons. I think um, when we see the the world. In all its madness and all of the ways that we could be engaged and should be engaged and want to be engaged. It can be hard to um, intuit what's skillful effort. How much time do we devote to responding skillfully? And is it okay to carve time out to go on retreat or for a sitting practice? We may not say these things out loud, but definitely they're moving in our hearts, I'm sure of it. And then, you know, this kind of feeling of helplessness that can arise, too, when we start to really uh, feel the world spinning out of control, like, what are we going to do? Is there any hope for us? And I really learned something about the nuance here, you know, that the Buddha spoke about that what is wise effort on the path as opposed to what we might think about as wise effort, you know, in our or in ordinary ways. And the the kind of work that we might do to, you know, Just using myself as an example, I appreciate talking about it because it feels like a confusing topic and because I learned a lot about it from the practice and the study ahead of giving a talk like this. And each talk I've offered on effort seems to be different than the last. And so that in and of itself was an illustration of what the Buddha meant by wise effort. You know, there's something there about being willing to be a learner and to appreciate the learning for its own sake, and not be so attached to the outcome, to what happens. You know, what is the result going to be? Well, who knows? But I know that this steadiness of this effort is good in its own right, right. And as we come to this exploration of effort, we get to really accept our own starting places. And one way we can do that is to understand our own psychological makeup. You know, what are our own tendencies? Do we tend to overdo it or do we tend to underdo it? Do we tend to feel easily um, defeated and want to give up? Are we more of a striving type and we'll push through even when it's not what's most indicated? And generally here in the United States, we have a tendency to kind of do the overdoing part, right? But it's really up that how we express effort in our practice is really in some ways dependent on how we understand ourselves, right? So that we know, we know better than anybody, right? What might be useful, what kind of effort is the most supportive to keeping practice going. When we think about, you know, effort, we can even start from the beginning, like coming here on a retreat. We had a reason for that, all of us. And isn't that ironic that we usually have, you know, some, Desire some wholesome desire to be calmer or wiser or more steady or stable or healthier or you know more responsive in our lives. Some something like this, and and yet we get here, and you know, quickly those <laughs> dreams fall apart. Right, <laughs> the first few minutes, maybe first few hours, for sure in the first day, we're like, well. Wow, this isn't as easy as I thought, and no matter how long we've been on the path, like like Mark was saying, it's it's a, it's kind of embarrassing how often we can be looking for the end of something, right? Just to get to the next thing, to accomplish what we want to accomplish, and that can be humbling for us. But even these, there are these moments when we do get a taste of what we came here for. That calm, or that peace, that kind of letting go, we get a taste of that, and it feels good, and it carries us for a while, right? Like, oh, yeah, I think there's something to this. But the deepest peace that the Buddha pointed to is is we get a taste of it in the, these moments, and it's even beyond that. Because the deepest peace is really a, a deep acknowledgement the deepest nod to the present moment. Like in a way, it's so humbling, right? To be in contact with what's real and to get a deeper and deeper sense of that as we go forward. And it's paradoxical in this way that in order for mindfulness to gain its own momentum, we have to let go of all of our agendas. And yet we have to be willing to linger in that taste of something that might help us keep moving forward and yet not have a goal (laughs) you know I read a little of the introduction of um, the Buddha before Buddhism last night after Mark's talk and um, and I got I I started with the acknowledgements because I always appreciate reading those And in his acknowledgments, he he thanked a bunch of people for their help in working with his translations and really for their help in correcting his translations and his understanding. And I found this so moving that as an expression of wise effort, that he said that, you know, these people, these really, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Diana Clark and to Biko and so many others. He said that their corrections and suggestions were as humbling as they have been supportive. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, that's a good student right there. Mm-hmm. To be more interested, to be at least as interested in offering something that's supported, you know, as he is interested in being a good student, right? And to be able to model that for the world, really. You know, that he's okay with being humbled, willing to be corrected. It's funny sometimes where we think the teaching is going to be and where we actually find it. And, but this is how it, it goes for us, doesn't it? We think we've got it, and then we don't. And then we're humbled in that moment. And often in our lives, we we have all these protective mechanisms built in. We think we've got it, and so we, we don't. And so we pretend that we've got it, or we deny that we don't have it, and we defend ourselves about how we do have it. And then we feel bad about ourselves for doing that kind of denial and defensive move. Or then we get reactive, some other reactivity, right? Arises in the mind and. But wise effort actually always involves correcting and adjusting. You know, we're looking for that balance place where effort is in alignment and integrated with the whole path. Where ethics and wisdom come together. And where there is both an ardency, where we acknowledge some persistence, some effort, and always a kind of resting back, relaxing, as Stacey was pointing us to today, and letting go of any agenda so that life emerges and we accept it right there. So how do we have wise effort? We understand something about what it is and what it isn't, and then we practice and we learn. We try and observe how it is. We apply that feedback from what we're noticing, and we keep going. Yeah, it's not—it's not a "we got it" kind of thing. There is a, and as we've seen, you know, the energy. There are these two words that energy and effort, and they have different poly words, but they often get described in similar ways so i'm um, I'll go between the effort uh energy is the mental factor of effort, so I'll probably bounce between using those words interchangeably tonight so we we notice that we that the energy fluctuates during the day in some moments it might be the energy might be feel fairly settled in the heart, you know, and, and in those, and maybe even tipping into some uh, dullness at times, right. Some kind of soupy feeling. Some of us have talked in the small groups about being a little lethargic or feeling dull or some kind of low energy state, even sleepy or dreamlike in our, in our meditations. And in, in those moments, then the kind of effort that's needed is slightly different than in moments when we're feeling that bubbling energy of excitement or anxiety, right? Or a burst of irritation or anger or a repeating storyline that has, that brings with it those intense feelings of anger, right? Or frustration, those repeating thoughts in the mind. Have you had those? It just it, bring a burst of energy and they just dis- and then they bring it again and then we our whole bodies reverberate with that energy right and in those moments when the energy is big a you know, kind of not pushing a leaning a leaning way back to give that energy its space to move right to dissipate in its own time is a different kind of effort that's needed when the energy is low and we might it might be wise to perhaps apply some mental noting right to, to spur a little investigation to strengthen the energy in the moment or to open the eyes and let some light in for a little extra stimulation. So we're, we're always playing with this kind of fluctuation of energy that's moving and the kind of efforts that we make should be adjusting and correcting, right? Because things are always changing. And the teachings on wise effort the Buddha offered really kind of center this, how he, t- he was, the Buddha was interested in, in change from the inside out. I can be humbled by this perhaps, but it doesn't seem like the Buddha was interested in changing the world. He was willing to be moved by the world and by suffering in the world. But his response to that suffering was to be really clear, as clear as possible, what's happening right here. And when that clarity, that depth of understanding is there, then it supports a skillful response, a wise, skillful, ethical response in our lives and in the world, right? So the world is actually shaped by our individual efforts and we see how when we're all doing this noble work of practice, then it actually supports the the community that we're a part of. The ways in which we make effort to be sincere in our practice here on retreat actually supports the whole retreat container. If we all came into the Zoom room and we were doing random things and playing with devices and moving our bodies and going in and out of the Zoom square, it would have a radical effect on the, on the whole container, what we're doing together, what we're building as a community, right? And yet our, our sincerity, how we show up, how we are willing to be wholehearted in our efforts, then also supports the container. Mm -hmm. So in saying that the Buddha wasn't, I don't think, (laughs) the Buddha was trying to change the world, but actually being more interested in what's happening right here and allowing that to express itself in good and useful ways in the world, No, does not mean that he was in some ways passive. So we're always making effort, and sometimes we'll hear this phrase engaged Buddhism, but it really seems to me that that word engaged is not necessary because it's always implied. We're always engaging, always participating with experience moment by moment. And the expression of that refined relationship to our internal experience then just naturally spills out of us. And so this cultivating wise effort directs the attention internally and asks us to imagine maybe new ways of motivating our response to life. It can seem like, uh, well, we should be, there's so much messed up about our lives in our world. We deserve to be angry right. or there's a justified. There's some justification for any kind of reactive tendency of mind, heart and mind. Yet when we look at, when we're cons- when we care about what's moving internally, and we really feel into that expression of anger or rage or hatred or ill will. You know, this is the kind of deep, deep reckoning that we do when we are brave enough to be with our own experience, to be with our direct experience. That when we feel any of those reactive tendencies, we know it doesn't feel good, right? And it doesn't actually seem it's an a el- like it's in those reactive tendencies, those afflictive states are in alignment with well-being, and yet the mind will justify our response to our life like, well, yeah, we should be angry about that, right, And yet when we look, we go, well, it hurts, it doesn't make this doesn't feel like it supports our own health, and so that requires us to have, to imagine a different motivating force. Like compassion. Because compassion doesn't avoid suffering. Compassion compassion squares right with suffering. It, It necessitates suffering. Without suffering, there is no compassion. Compassion is the movement of love that is connected with suffering. So the Buddha move, was moved by suffering in the world and his life and teaching was an expression of being willing to connect with that, right? just like that can be true for us. And it may not seem like compassion is strong enough, right? But that's because we just haven't cultivated it enough or acknowledged its presence enough. So we have to be curious about the possibility of these wholesome forces motivating all aspects of the way we live and engage. And we see the possibility of that in our own lives because it wouldn't actually, it it wouldn't be sustaining to be on retreat for longer than a few hours probably if we didn't have some compassion. It's just too hard to come in contact with all all of the mess right? Have you touched the mess yet? The <laughs> things you don't like or want or some things that don't feel pleasant in there? Yeah. And we might try to fight it or, you know, deny its existence, anxiety. I was noticing some, a lot of thinking earlier. I've just noticing a lot of thinking. I didn't particularly like it. And even though we're practicing in this way with Thayda Utajaniya's teachings and that ask us to receive and allow the expression of any experience, there was still this habit to have a little bit of bracing against that movement of thought, right? That activity of mind. Until this heart realized, well, that isn't actually it's not actually helping it's just making it worse and so then this kind of leaning back and just well let's allow whatever is happening to just happen sweetie that's just a that's just the way it's the way the way we've come in contact with wise effort the way we find wise effort is by Often touching those places where we feel confused. And so this classically there are the Buddha talked about four kinds of wise effort or four wise endeavors, sometimes they're called. And this very simply they're about setting down unwholesome tendencies and cultivating wholesome tendencies of mind. So imagining the forces of compassion and other wholesome forces to guide our lives while we learn how to, while this heart learns how to set down all those afflictive motivating forces that don't serve us. Right? And we can see how they don't serve us in real time. So we, it's, it can be, it has been useful to me to just name them in one word, right? So the first two, wise efforts to protect the heart from developing unwholesome tendencies. We might say to keep life simple, right? To not step into trouble, to not go looking for it, to not put ourselves in positions where the unwholesome is going to arise and to abandon, so to protect, and then to abandon the unwholesome when it's arisen. So just like I was illustrating a minute ago and noticing that, oh, this heart isn't really appreciating this pattern of thinking here or the frequency of thought. And that might go unnoticed for a minute, but when the heart comes in contact with it and really lets it in, the actual letting go, the abandoning happens on its own, right? Right. Because the heart feels that suffering and we know we don't want that. You don't want to suffer. So it's not like some project that we have to really dig our heels in to abandon the unwholesome. And sometimes we can make that mistake of thinking that we need to drive really hard to abandon the unwholesome. But it's not so much like that. It's more of an attuning, right? An attunement, letting it in, letting the heart feel that. And then being willing to just watching the heart attune to that movement of, you know, that unskillful energy that's moving right there. Oh, yeah, it feels like this. Can I care about that? Oh, compassion's right there. And then we get to the next two, the cultivate and maintain. Cultivate wholesome habits and maintain them when they're there. Or we might say linger in the wholesome. So when we notice like, oh, sweetie, this hurts. That kind, There's a bit of care already there. And so, work that connection with reality, with life, with experience, with objects, right? Then allow for that cultivation, right there, because that movement in the direction of life itself is actually a protective response, right? and allows for this cultivation of goodness. And then when, then our job is to turn towards it and go, Oh yeah, this heart knows how to be good. Look at this. I thought I was totally off the path, right? Thought I I thought there was no hope for me (laughs) that this heart was just going to be unskillful forever and ever and ever. That this, I was plagued with this anxiety and I had to be an anxious person. But look at that. I can be marveled by the heart's capacity for goodness, even in this moment, you know, when I feel hopeless. Gil Franzdahl's, uh we had a, a little conversation with Gil not long ago. I'm helping him with a, re- a retreat, doing some online teaching for a retreat he's leading in person with others. And he was um, talking about how he reframed the four wise efforts and other teachings too. But for the four wise efforts, he summed them up like, don't make it worse. <laughs> So that, that could be a nice mantra for us. Sweetie, just don't, just don't make it worse, right? We're going to protect the heart from, you know, we're, if we are, we're just going to follow the schedule as a way of protecting the heart from all of the exciting things it could be doing, like reading shampoo bottles or, uh, who knows what, flipping through titles of books at the retreat center or, Sweeping and re-sweeping the floor to get every tiny crumb off of it—it it seems so urgent, right? While we're on retreat, but as an act of protection, we're just going to follow the schedule. We're not going to make it worse, right? We're not going to make it harder on ourselves. And then when we catch ourselves doing neurotic things or doing things that actually do make it worse, we're going to remember, oh, don't keep doing that, right? We <laughs> don't—you don't, you don't want to keep doing that because you can feel that it's not—it's not helping. Yeah. And then we're going to remember that these afflictive habits, you know, when the heart, that what's, what's often lurking beneath these habits is the heart's own goodness. And we sometimes don't feel it until we touch those afflictive habits. So we're not going to forget that cultivating the habit, cultivating Habits of kindness and mindfulness and remembering to recognize wisdom and being truthful to ourselves, you know, that these habits are a way of not, that cultivating these habits are a way of not making it worse, right? So we don't want to err on the side of just thinking that, well, our hearts are just filled with mess. Right all the only Buddhist practice is about noticing only what's unpleasant, only what makes us feel bad. <laughs> well, that's not it at all. actually, we notice we there are so many moments of goodness, or, like I said, I don't think we would make it through a full day of retreat without them, but we miss them so often, you know we just miss like, oh, this moment of mindfulness is a moment where the heart is being good, it's turning towards the wholesome. This moment where I return to the hall, even when I feel defeated, is like the heart's resolve that's moving in the direction of its deepest aspirations right now. And then the way those wholesome habits get stronger is by lingering, by really letting them in. And so we're not going to make it worse by ignoring what's already here, ignoring these wholesome habits. Right, We're just going to strengthen them. We're going to work to strengthen them so that we can remember, oh, yeah, especially in moments where we need to remember that this heart knows how to be good. We're going to remember, oh, yeah, look at that. You know, I can really soak this in. I'm going to let my whole constitution invite the whole, this body to really feel what kindness feels like, right? I'm going to invite this body to feel that uprightness when there's truth telling, When I'm reckoning with something that's actually real, I'm not kidding myself about hatred that flows through this mind or ill will that, you know, I might not be impressed by it, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be right there for it and appreciate that truthfulness. And when the heart learns to let go of its incessant clinging and wanting our retreat experience or our lives or the world to be a, any particular way, it the wholesome more naturally arises on its own. You know, that's a it's an interesting paradox, isn't it? That loving kindness and compassion seems to be just waiting there. At least that's my experience. That when the heart stops trying to make something happen. Even trying to get to calm, right? To be a calm person or to get to stability that somehow there's, that we need to let go of those goals and objectives in order to be able to feel the deepest peace that the Buddha was pointing to that isn't dependent on any conditions, right? That liberation is actually A result of our deepening understanding. It's a wisdom that's actually liberative, right? So, seeing something about experience, knowing something deeply about experience that is always moving, right? Oh, I don't have to hold on to this. There doesn't need to be a center here of a, a Shelley that's disturbed by this. Like, who, who is disturbed by this experience? Right? And that Wanting things to be, you know, that incessant wanting is is just what suffering is made of. So when the heart kind of learns to let go of wanting anything, our retreat experience, our lives to be a particular way, then it lets go of its incessant clinging. That's how it happens right there in these ordinary moments with this ordinary body and this mind that does its things and these personality habits as they are and these patterns as they are. And that moment we, you know, we can feel humbled by that moment, but actually what it feels like to me is a little bit more like raw and vulnerable and a part of earthy, like more a part of the earth. Like that, that shedding of arrogance or needing to be a particular kind of human being is just not, not there in those moments. And that feels really good and really grounding. And I'm sure that helps somebody like Gil Fronstal say that he can be humbled by, you know, a wise being's corrections of his translations. There's a a story that I really love that I think illustrates something, so many stories in the in the Buddhist teachings and the scriptures of the suttas about that illustrate effort, but this one particular story about Bahia of the bark, this wise being named Bahia, really wise being, and was kind of, you know, had some people appreciated his wisdom. And he started to question: well, how wise am I really? And then like well really am i as wise as the buddha and at some point he got some information that was like well you might be wise but you know you're not really on the path and so he decided to and i'm of course paraphrasing the story in a hopefully a little bit of a playful way and so bahia decides to go set off to find the buddha and we have to be kind of careful of how we interpret the details but it's said that he walks like over uh, a lot of mountain or maybe not walk. We don't know how he actually got there. It's controversial, who knows, but in ancient India, you know, he got there somehow and he walked, we can say he walked a long way or he moved a long way. I like to, to imagine him walking, but you know, who knows, but over mountains. And so we can imagine that took a long, long time, probably days, weeks, who knows how long, And he gets finally gets to the Buddha and finds the Buddha and he asks the Buddha for the teachings in brief, you know. And the Buddha says denies him, like, no, Bahia, it's not the right time. Bahia comes back again and he asks the Buddha for a second time. And again, the Buddha denies him, right? Can you imagine going all that way and finally getting to the Buddha and wanting the teachings and just being modest, like just the teachings in brief, Buddha? And the Buddha's like, no, and no. And then he goes to the Buddha a third time, and finally the Buddha uh, gives him the teachings. And he says, um, he says, he makes this very short statement. Uh, I don't know if I can put my fingers on it in short time. But he says the, the scene, is just, he goes through the five senses and the, the sixth sense. The scene is just the scene, the herd is just the herd. You know, and on and on. And the cognized is just the cognized. When when you realize Bahia, that there's no you in relationship to that, there's no you there. And this is the end of suffering. This is the end of stress, something like that. Again, a paraphrase from a paraphrase from my memory. And often this uh, story is told with this like ending. And it's really beautiful that this, these brief teachings and you know, Bahia is there for them and the Buddha sums up all the teachings in this very succinct way and it said that the Buddha was fully awakened after that and very shortly after that then was killed by a, a cow I think as it goes so you know often this kind of big ending and the Buddha tells his students that oh yeah but he was Understood the end of suffering and even this with this brief teaching. And yet what always compels me about this story is how many times Bahia probably wanted to quit. You now, can you imagine thinking, well, I am somebody and then realizing, well, maybe I'm not and having to go all that way to find the Buddha and then get there and denied not just once, Or twice but you know and how many times the bahia probably had to reinvigorate his practice with his aspirations to find the motivation to make the effort to keep going Right. right to keep practicing and to keep his mind in a place that supported the reception of that wisdom when the time was right so sometimes we can think of effort as this tall order, right? And in fact, some of the language that's used to describe effort, one makes effort, arouses energy, exerts the mind, and strives. We can misunderstand this, I think, because it collides with our cultural conditioning, you know, and we can misinterpret this. But... That often that misinterpretation will lead us to think that we actually have to just dig our our heels in and force our way through. And yet it's a lot more subtle than that and nuanced and requiring a connection. And sometimes the only effort that's needed is to remember our intentions, to remember our aspirations, and to let the movement of our practice flow from those deep intentions. And they can be very simple. Right. Like, I just want to be a good partner or I want to be a good parent or I want to be of service in the world. Or they can be quite deep. Like, I want to, I want to know a fully liberated mind, what that's like. But we can be, can remember that sometimes the, what's wise effort is probably a little a, a little closer than we think, right? and not be afraid to make the corrections and do the simplest thing to find ourselves in balance in a balance finding a balanced effort that honors how we all were always making effort and we're always participating there's always a kind of engagement with experience there's no doubt about that, and that this we can be wholeheartedly ardent and persistent and also relaxed and receptive at the same time. So let's sit a minute and let go of the words. thanks for your kind attention tonight, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.